You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer, and co host, Dr. Rocky. Hey, Kiefer. <laughs> I'm not for sure you're going to nail it this did I, time. Did I, even, did I nail it? <laughs> no. I did. How can that not be? There's got to be know. a delay. It's yeah. I'm in Skype. It's, I it's don't know. It, it doesn't sound like a delay whenever you talk to me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, always, you know, I appreciate everybody who sponsors the show by buying products from Body.io, uh, the Transforming Recipes, Carb Night, Carb Backloading. Uh, appreciate everybody who does the free download of Shockwave. I know that's become almost as popular as my diet programs. And uh, High Lead Athletic Wear, and you can find more information on the website about them. So on today's show, uh, it's it's been a lot of scheduling, uh, tr- trying to get this guest on the show, and uh, we've been trying for a little while actually. And we're finally lucky enough to get Chris Kresser on the show, New York Times bestseller. Uh, I think our our second New York Times bestseller on the show, if I'm correct. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for making the time for us. We appreciate it. Oh, pleasure to be here. Sorry, sorry it took so long. The, the beginning of the year is always a tricky time for me, but I'm happy to, that we can finally work it out. Yeah, and it was hard for us, too, because we tried the end of last year and our our end of the year was really kind of crazy. So yeah. Um, yeah. Mine was too. Uh, so how's it, how's everything going, uh, with, with the book? And- Things are great. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the paperback version of my book just came out. Um, we rebranded it. It's called the paleo cure. Now it was originally called your personal paleo code. So, uh, just got through that and now I'm, uh, you know, doing my normal thing, seeing patients and also in the process of developing a clinician training program, um, which I'm really excited about. So that's taken up a lot of my time. Oh, that's awesome. I, I think in general, that's kind of the education piece, I think is what's missing a lot in, in Mm -hmm. just the health and wellness space. You know, a lot of people will come out with their material, but then don't really give enough information to help people help others. Right. And there's a, I mean, there's a huge demand for practitioners of functional medicine that have an ancestral perspective right now, um, as evidenced by, you know, our situation in my clinic is we, we just can't, you know, I keep hiring people, we keep, um, and everybody in the clinic is totally full and we just can't accommodate any more people. And, and we frequently get a question of, you know, where do I find someone who does this kind of work? And unfortunately at this point, there, we just, there are very few referrals that we can actually make. So, um, and there's no place, there are places to study, you know, ancestral nutrition and there are places to study functional medicine, but there's no place where you can, where you can get both in the same program. So that's the need we're trying to address. That's, you know, um, like I said, and you speak of, uh, the market there, I always kind of like to compare if, if people just realize the help they could do and and I don't like to put numbers on things, but, you know, the, the profitability of it that would give you the ability to do even more, you know, CrossFit, their entire model is just a training model. And 
the information they give may not be excellent or whatever, but you're talking about a multi-million dollar corporation at this point. And if they were of the mindset to actually help people, I mean, the, the things they could do with their revenue stream uh, to really move certain things forward would be phenomenal. And I, I think that's what people in the paleo community and people in the health and wellness community are, are finally kind of starting to see is, you know, if you monetize this in, in better ways that help more people, you're actually going to have more freedom to then do what you do best, and that's learn how to drive everything forward and make it easier. I agree. Yeah, we desperately need uh, a new system. The, the current healthcare model is, is broken beyond repair. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's really a subject for debate at this point. Um, everybody recognizes that, and the question is, what's the way forward? And it's encouraging to see, you know, there's some new initiatives like uh, Dr. Mark Hyman was just tapped to start the fun a, a, a functional medicine center at the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the most uh, prestigious medical institutions in the world. And, and as the acceptance of functional medicine grows, it will start to become integrated into our healthcare system. And that's when there's some real potential for change, because um, right now it's just mostly available to people who can afford to pay out of pocket, um, which is a limited, obviously limited section of the, of the population. And once it gets, uh, you know, th there's, whether we like the uh, insurance model or not, I don't think it's going anywhere for the time being. And, and so um, for people to actually be able to be reimbursed for some of these services will be a huge um, factor in, in terms of, uh, uh, it being adopted on a wider scale, which is what we need, because um, just taking drugs and getting surgery is not really the way forward. Yeah, I know Rocky you know, struggles with this. Yeah, I would certainly agree that, um, you know, whether or not it's uh, a paleo diet plan or if it's a functional medicine approach or a general um, all-encompassing approach, you know, at least from my perspective, we know that diet and lifestyle can make such a huge difference in people's health and their lives and in their mortality and morbidity. Um, so I think I definitely concur with you. And it, it is something we struggle with here in, in my practice because, you know, we are providing some things that maybe are considered, um, I, I'm not a functional medicine trained doctor, but certainly mm -hmm. I, I'm on the fringes of some of that thing, some of the things that functional medicine doctors do. Sure. Um, and I tend to kind of meld both traditional medicine with non-traditional in terms of the dietary approaches we try with our patients. So in that standpoint, I am kind of unique, but it is a struggle because it's hard to find the time to provide the education that the patient needs before they make some of these changes. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of times what will happen is, and I'm sure you see this, is patients will make the change on their own based of what they read on the internet or mm -hmm. what their friend was doing. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they'll crash and burn and then they end up and seeing you or me. Yeah. So, so, you know, I guess to segue, um, you know, when patients, um, I, I like to use kind of more of a whole food diet than the word paleo, mm -hmm. but it, whether you, whatever you know, description you want to give it, what are your, what are kind of some of the common problems you see with patients that come to you when they kind of embark on this journey and then they run into the problems? Mm -hmm. Well, my patient population is atypical for sure. I, you know, I think because of the nature of my own health history, uh, because of my internet presence and blog, um, I really see kind of people who haven't been able to find help anywhere else. And they, they're typically folks who've seen, you know, 
10 to 20 or more doctors in their lifetime. Uh, they've tried, you know, all different kinds of special diets. They tend to be very highly educated in terms of all of the different options for, for diets and supplements. Um, and the, these tend to be folks that are kind of at the end of the line. And uh, so, so my work with them is, it's not, you know, it's not what uh, a general care practitioner might might see uh, in their daily practice. But typically I'm dealing with, uh, you know, as I said, chronic complex illnesses, autoimmune disease, uh, digestive and gut problems like intestinal permeability, uh, bacterial overgrowth or fungal overgrowth, uh, chronic fatigue issues, hormone imbalances, um, uh, chronic infections of all types, um, you know, blood sugar imbalances. And I do see patients, you know, who obviously who are overweight and, and, uh, have blood sugar issues and metabolic problems and, and lipid abnormalities, but those problems usually tend to be secondary, uh, in my practice. Um, the, the bigger people generally come see me for, um, some of the things that I just mentioned more than anything else. And, and they may have some of these other issues to a, to a lesser degree, but, um, that's, that's of course a little bit outside of the norm when, you know, most people are dealing like on the, on the broader scale are dealing with metabolic issues. You know, let's face it. It's, it's generally weight loss, cardiovascular risk, metabolic disease, like diabetes, high blood pressure, et cetera. Those, those are, that's typical. Yeah. In what way, maybe you can explain, you had mentioned functional medicine, um, for those who are not, you know, knowing what that is, can you kind of give mm -hmm. a brief description and then, you know, how does that help you with assessing some of these more difficult patients? Sure. So, you know, these are general generalizations. So, um, just <laughs> take it with a grain of salt, but in, in general, uh, functional medicine seeks to identify the underlying cause of a problem and address that rather than just suppressing symptoms. Whereas in conventional medicine, it's often geared towards disease management and, and symptom suppression. So an example would be if a patient um, comes in with high cholesterol, the typical conventional approach might be to prescribe a statin drug to lower the cholesterol. In functional medicine, we uh, we wouldn't necessarily rule out the use of a statin, but it certainly wouldn't be the first choice. The first thing we would do is explore all of the potential underlying causes that can lead to high cholesterol in the first place. So those include metabolic uh, disorders, you know, like diabetes or, or glucose intolerance, leptin, insulin resistance. They include poor thyroid function. Uh, T3 is required to activate the LDL receptor. So if you have low T3, sluggish thyroid function that can lead to high LDL and total cholesterol levels in the blood. Uh, we know that intestinal permeability can lead to high cholesterol because uh, endotoxins like lipopolysaccharide can escape into the bloodstream and LDL particles actually are play an antimicrobial role. So the liver will make more LDL particles in order to deal with that endotoxin in the bloodstream that can increase uh, LDL particle number uh, or, you know, cholesterol. And I've seen in my practice, uh, people with high cholesterol or high LDL particle number 
just addressing their gut will take them from like 23, 2400 LDL particle number, which is very high down to like 1200 or, uh, or 1300, which is only, you know, high normal. So um, we might also explain, uh, look at chronic infections like H. pylori or chronic viral infections, with, which can increase uh, cholesterol and LDL particle number. So, so we're exploring all of these underlying mechanisms or potential causes of high cholesterol and addressing them first. And then, you know, we might, we would measure cholesterol at the end of all of that work. And if it's still elevated, in that case, we would assume there is probably a genetic cause like familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, some kind of genetic mutation that impairs the clearance of cholesterol or LDL particles. And we might then consider uh, natural agents that can, that can reduce LDL particle number like um, delta and gamma tocotrienols and higher doses of pantothene, which is the active form of B5 and, and some other things like that. And only if that doesn't work at the end of all of that, we, depending on the person, you know, whether they've already had a heart attack, what they're, uh, you know, whether they're male or female, how, how old they are, what their family history of heart disease is, what other risk factors they might have. For example, do they have a high C-reactive protein and other markers that suggest an inflammatory environment? Uh, do they have a high calcium score, which indicates calcification of the arteries? You know, all of those questions would then go into whether prescription of a, of a drug like a statin would be appropriate. So as you can see, it's a, it's a much more lengthy process, but it's really, I believe, the best way to approach it because when you address these underlying causes, you can often avoid the use of medication. And furthermore, you're addressing problems that need to be addressed, which would be missed entirely if a statin drug is just prescribed without any of that investigation. Yeah, I know Rocky can talk to the uh, elevated cholesterol <laughs> levels because I don't know if you want to give exact your own exact numbers, Rocky, but I know they're definitely what would be considered extremely high and you've pretty much come to the attitude when you see it in yourself and some of your patients that you don't worry about it because everything else uh, is so good. C-reactive protein is, is low. Calcium scores are low. Um, you even see positive changes in carotid artery scans. Yeah, I, I've, I've written a blog post on this as well uh, a couple of years back, but I, I've been following, I, you know, I, I, I eat a very low carbohydrate diet. Uh, and, and when I did make that switch, um, you know, we've seen these case reports online of people who post their extraordinarily high LDL particle and account numbers and, um, are freaking out because, you know, they, they're feeling better. They've lost body fat. They're improving in terms of cognitively, they work better yet. The only abnormal marker on their panels are these extraordinarily high LDL particle counts. And I think, you know, I'm sure you struggled with these numbers. I've struggled with them. A lot of other practitioners have. And, you know, the question becomes is, um, you know, is, is it, does it make a difference, uh, depending yeah. on the, on the scenario? And, and, and certainly like for me, I mean, all my inflammatory markers are, are rock bottom. I, you know, my calcium score is zero. I actually showed some reversal in ather atherosclerotic plaque in my carotid bulb, um, mm -hmm. and my, in my in, intimate medial thickness of my carotid artery, um, improved as well significantly. So, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to try to track down. And I think there's so many different root causes, as you've alluded to, that um, even with the smallest you kind of encompassed, 
you know, the, the list is longer than the length of my arm in terms of the different mm -hmm. possibilities. So mm -hmm. sometimes you just don't have the, the, the answer that some patients are really looking for. And so then you obviously have to go to the research and, you know, interpret the research in, in, in terms of uh, what you think is applicable. Right. And so. that's the problem is we don't have research that answers the question, what is the additive risk of high LDLP in a clinical context where there are no other significant risk factors for heart disease? Right. Because all, or even well, when you have a low carbohydrate diet, right? Because all, right. all the LDLP studies are in a regular diet. Exactly. So, and, and there are also studies in the general population and where people tend to have multiple risk factors uh, for, for heart disease in addition to high LDLP. So, um, you know, to me, it, this is, of course, a question that we struggle with all the time as, as functional medicine practitioners. And, um, uh, you know, if, if it's true that atherosclerosis is gradient driven process, then it would make sense that all things being equal, a lower LDLP is better than a higher one, but we don't even know that that's, I mean, that's probably, that's certainly an oversimplified theory. There are many things that go into the pathogenesis of heart disease. And we know, for example, that over 90% of people who have high cholesterol that go on to have a heart attack have another significant risk factor. So that alone should tell us that lipids are not the whole story, not even most of the story. Um, but yet it's the thing that we tend to focus on the when I say we, I mean the, the, the general uh, approach to heart disease risk and prevention is, is, I would say, overly and even obsessively focused on lipids and lipid profiles. Well, I know, and we've talked about this as well in the past in terms of how, um, you know, it seems like cardiovascular disease in particular is one of the few disease states where we are actually making our decisions based on risk and not disease. Right. So, you know, my, my end game here, at least in my practice, is we always want to know either functionally how is the cardiovascular system working or um, radiologically what does it already look like mm -hmm. and, and then base your decision off of that as well because I think it's a very important factor because if you've got clean arteries and you've got great functional capacity to do exercise and physiologically you've got good stroke volume over time on a, on a stress test, um, you know, that high LDLP is probably not going to be as much of a problem as in a patient who's got diabetes, who's got low functional capacity to do work and has, uh, you know, a two millimeter plaque in their left carotid bulb. Those are completely two different patients. Absolutely. So, so you know, I, you know, one of the things I, 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 I struggle with, or at least I, um, as a pet peeve of mine is, I, I don't know, um, maybe you can kind of lend more, more of your insight to this is, in terms of in terms of functional medicine practitioners, it seems like there's this aversion or um, um, a negative connotation to medications. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, um, I certainly don't like to prescribe medication, but I try to find the use of medication as an adjunct and not necessarily a a um, last last um, last option. Um, and I think, you know, and I would go the same route with whether supplementation you can do as well. I mean, I, I, I try to be more holistic in my practice. And so we use combinations of things so that we can use lower doses of medicine in some patients. Um, but I certainly, um, from a standpoint, it's not usually often the last thing I'm going to prescribe. 
But I see this over and over again in kind of the functional medicine community is this kind of negative connotation. And, and we certainly know that medicines can have side effects. Um, they're not 100% safe. Um, and so those are conversations we have with our patients all the time. But it seems like it's almost to one extreme. Is, is, that, is that kind of accurate kind well, of perspective and, of functional medicine? And just or? to be clear, like you said, you use it as an adjunct. Your ultimate goal is to get them yeah. weaned off of it as quickly Correct. as possible. Just yeah. make sure that context. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I because I, I think there can be some benefit from certain medications in the right scenario, and, and so I just kind of I always see this though. I'm not necessarily saying you know this is your problem. I'm just saying in general, in terms of the functional medicine community, I I see this quite a bit. You know, I've been, I, I was actually at a uh, functional medicine conference a couple of years back, and so you know, they have this big convention room, and and you know just hearing people talk about you know um, the negative connotations of this, um, I, it was I was quite surprised actually. You know. Because I think that functional medicine community tends to be a more open community, except when it comes to medicine. Well, I can't speak for others, but for myself, my guideline is relatively simple. And that is I endeavor to choose the therapy that is most effective and causes has the least potential for causing harm. So if a, if, if a medication uh, is the answer to that question in a given situation, then in our clinic, we'll use it. Now I'm a, I'm not a, an MD, so I don't prescribe medication myself, but I work with, uh, in, at the California center for functional medicine, I have a clinical associate that's an MD that prescribes medication. And then, uh, my, my co-director and co-founder is also an MD. And so I'm, you know, I have a, a fair amount of experience, um, you know, in a setting where medication is prescribed. And that's really the kind of the guideline that, that informs our choices. So um, an example would be low-dose naltrexone, which is a medication that's being increasingly used to, um, to treat autoimmune conditions like ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel disease. And uh, what it does is it promotes T-regulatory cell production and differentiation. It reduces central nervous system inflammation, and it upregulates endorphin production. And those things all improve the function of the body. They all make the immune system work better. Uh, it's got an extremely low side effect profile, uh, no known adverse effects in any of the studies that have been done so far, very well tolerated by patients with only you know mild and transient sleep disturbance as a as a uh, side effect, which can usually be mitigated by just starting with an even lower dose and building up slowly over time. So if I apply the standard of, you know, if it is most effective with the least potential for harm, then in that medication meets that standard very well. And so it's something that uh, we use in our practice. We're not averse to using it or afraid of using it at all. And and sometimes we actually have to find ourselves talking in, talking patients into trying it who, who, come with the expectation that they're not going to be prescribed any medication at all. And I, I basically use the same explanation with them that we, you, you know, that I just use with you that look, you know, we try not to be dogmatic one way or the other. We just want to do what will produce the best effect with the least potential for causing harm. In our experience, most often that comes down to diet, lifestyle and supplements um, although there are a few cases where medication does fit in, you know, uh, meet that criteria. And I think it also depends on what kind of practice you have. Like I have 
that kind of practice, you know, I see very few patients a week. I, I you know, because I'm writing and researching and blogging and stuff. So I only see patients two days a week. I spend an hour with patients when I see them. And, and I even have time that's carved out prior to the appointment where I review their files. And, st- you know, it's a very unusual practice. So I have the luxury of, you know, take uh, of, of, spending a lot of time discussing diet, lifestyle interventions, supplements, and things like that. I have a patient population that's highly motivated because they've been through so much by the time they get to see me and because they've often waited six months to even up to two years before they've gotten in to see me. So I recognize that, that you know, the way that I treat patients isn't realistic for a lot of other clinicians. And, um, you know, so I, I guess to answer your question, I'm not averse to medication across the board. Um, I just apply that standard that I mentioned. And if a medication fits that uh, criteria, then we in our clinic would, would be happy to use it. Seems like you have a nice setup. That's uh, I envy the hour appointment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it opens up a lot of possibilities that Frank, that, that simply aren't, open if you don't have that kind of time. And I recognize that it's a luxury and a privilege and it makes, it makes it, you know, more difficult for me to, to sort of make these broad sweeping statements um, because I recognize that the vast majority of clinicians out there are not, you know, able to practice that way. It's not, it's not really viable given the way that the, the model is set up. And so we always, both as clinicians and patients, we have to work within the frame that we have and do and do the best we can within that framework. And so, and there are certainly some drugs, as I'm sure you'd agree, Rocky, that are, that are better than others. And, and some like metformin, for example, that can be really helpful in, in addressing a, um, pretty serious metabolic issues uh, while you're do, doing the, you know, diet and lifestyle change and, and just like bringing the person back from the cliff, so to speak, in terms of their risk profile. And then eventually, hopefully they're able to completely get off um, the medication, but, but, but that can take time. And, and so, yeah, as a, a kind of a raft or a bridge to get to the other side, I, um, as long as they don't cause harm, I, I don't see any problem with it. What's your average time with a patient, Rocky, just for comparison? Um, my, uh, my appointment times are all a half an hour at this point in time, but certainly, you know, it, that can go shorter, it can go longer. So, but in general, on my schedule, I see a patient every 30 minutes. So well, I'm a little bit out. That's better than most. Yeah. Right? I'm a little bit out of the, I'm a little bit out of the norm. I, I've chosen yeah. to do that because, um, I just found that, you know, most, most providers are doing every 10 to 15 minutes, maybe, yeah. maybe even less than that. Yeah. And, and honestly at, at, at 10 minutes, you walk in, hi, let me examine <laughs> yeah. you. Here's a script. I'm out the door. And yeah. obviously that's not going to really um, be something that's going to be advantageous for a patient. Yeah. Uh, so. It's advantageous for the insurance companies and HMOs that are, right. you know, making money off of that. But yeah, not for the pa- and not for the doctors either. I'm, I'm sure you'd agree that that's well, I, 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 I a pleasurable yeah. way to practice medicine. Yeah. I don't even know if it's an insurance company making money situation as it is um, the drive, the way that reimbursement set up for primary care providers and providers in general, it is volume based at this point in time. So, you know, the more people you see through the door, the more money you make. I mean, and unfortunately right. that's kind of the problem right now. And obviously I think healthcare policy is trying to move away from that. Um, you know, trying to go more on performance and, and outcomes, 
But, you know, we're light years away from some of this stuff being reformed in our medical um, healthcare right. um, policy. So um, you know, we're kind of in this kind of um, infant process of this pay for performance type of uh, attitude. Um, but still, it's, it's volume driven and procedure driven. You know, what, right. how many, um, let me see more patients and let me do more things to you. More and reimbursement. That's what yeah. Like, and that's, that's systemic that's, because if you yeah. graduate from, if you come out of medical school with $250,000 in debt, then you're, you're, you've got kind of a gun to your head to make it work. So, so it's a problem all the way through the system. So I've kind of gone and gone middle of the road. I can spend a little bit more time with my patients. I can educate them. I can give them, um, I can review the, the extensive laboratory testing that we do with them and then give them a game plan so that they can yeah. make a difference. And, yeah. you know, and that, and that all, you know, when patients are successful, they tell people and we get referrals that way. And so we stay pretty busy. Um, uh, and in, you know, with the half an hour appointments, obviously, you know, we're not, Again, we're not trying to rush people out the door, so I don't. No, keep- I mean my follow-ups are often a half hour, so that's a that's a substantial. You can get a lot done in that amount yeah, of time. Yeah, definitely. Sure. I've I've been waiting for a place to throw in the statistic. Speaking of our healthcare system and insurance and everything, and I remember in 2010, I actually was involved in a venture where we were looking at um, healthcare models. And at the time, the projections were if we stayed the course with our current healthcare model and the rate at which people are getting sick and staying sick instead of getting better once they get sick, right. that the United States right. would be insolvent due to healthcare costs by 2030. And yeah, I, I have that n- too. Yeah, and I haven't seen that statistic updated. And that's coming up pretty fast. You know, mm-hmm. th- this is no longer an option to find ways not to just help people limp to the grave, but to fix them and get this problem yeah. under control. I agree completely. And I actually think, you know, one of the biggest objections you hear um, initially about functional medicine is, oh, you know, that's never going to work because it's so expensive. All the testing you do is so expensive. And the truth is, when you really look at it from, you know, cradle to grave, functional medicine is dirt cheap because, Yes, it might cost a little bit more upfront to do some of the, you know, the testing uh, to determine what the underlying cause is. But once that happens, and once you make the necessary adjustments, diet, lifestyle, supplements, and even judicious use of medication, you could potentially save an insurance company thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars um, over the lifetime of a particular person if you are able to prevent a disease like type two diabetes or cardiovascular disease or, or autoimmune disease, which now, I mean, I just read statistics that, that suggest that one in four women now will, will acquire an autoimmune disease in their lifetime and one in six men. That's just crazy. These diseases were rare or non-existent uh, even, you know, a couple of hundred years ago in, in, in the industrialized world, and they're still very quite rare in the developing world. So, I mean, I think once insurance companies and, and, and the managed care system gets a taste of how effective a, a more holistic, functional, integrated, whatever you want to call it, approach can be and, and, and how much money it can save them, then we're going to see a more rapid adoption of it. Right now, they're, they're, they seem to be scared of it. But I think one of the thing, good things that can come out of the Cleveland Clinic initiative is that um, there's going to be, you know, more research on functional medicine, but there's also going to be, uh, you know, uh, examples of how it can be applied in, in, in a conventional context and, and the kind and the kind of money that can be saved in that, 
in that context. Yeah, well, it's it's the difference of, at least in the functional space or like what Rocky and I do, you're providing tools, you know, those tools might cost a little more upfront, but you're providing tools where people can basically do self-care moving forward and they can wean themselves off of these higher cost uh, tests. And, you know, maybe every once in a while they'll, they'll have to come back to that, but more likely you're, you are, you're giving them the tools to find a way to control everything about their health. So, you know, maybe yeah. if things do go a little aberrant, they know how to get it back on track. Um, they they know right. what the problems are. I think going down the road, that's where you get these massive cost benefits to for insurance companies, but also for the person. I don't think most people assess the cost of being sick and not feeling good and missing work and losing yeah. time with their families, that is a huge loss. Uh, the, and yeah. num- the numbers aren't so clear on that. So people aren't thinking, okay, well, maybe this appointment's going to cost me $1,000, but down the road, I'm not going to need another appointment, period. Right. So there's, yeah, there's both a tangible cost benefit in terms of saving money over their lifespan on healthcare, but there's also the intangible that you were referring to. Like, what what is the value of getting, go, you know, going through a day without pain and discomfort and being able to play with your kids and have energy to do that and, and have a good relationship with your partner and, and have a clear mind so that you can focus on your work and achieve your goals there. I mean, those, those things are really, you know, I think most people would agree that they're, they're priceless or pretty close to it. So, um, yeah, it would, Unfortunately, as human beings, thinking in those terms and, and projecting forward isn't doesn't really seem to be our strong suit. We're, we're, right. We appear to be a little more hardwired for dealing with only what's right in front of us. But, uh, you know, hopefully we're, we're changing and evolving in that sense. Yeah, we're definitely a society of instant gratification. Uh, one study I saw that it was really interesting, it's gotten to the point where if people people can be going through their day at their certain pace – and getting things done, you know, in their normal kind of time schedule that works for them. If you expose them to an image of McDonald's or anything with the McDonald's logo, they instantly kick into a hyper state where they feel like they have less time to get things done. We've we've gotten to that point where even the restaurants that I think, and you can make a convincing argument for, help contribute to these disease states, even those restaurants are causing a stressor on people to make them feel like they have less time to do anything. Uh, and that's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy. And we've just mm-hmm. enforced that. I think in a lot of ways that this is a society of instant gratification and our, unfortunately the, the medical model that we use now is based on that. Okay. You come in, you're feeling sick right now. We're going to give you a pill to make you feel better in this moment. And then you check out You're like, oh, okay, I feel yeah. better. And the next time you check in is when you need a new medication because the one you're on only helps you limp to the next state instead of just taking care of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would say, I would say that the instant gratification also um, probably uh, pertains to the um, policy inertia that you see as well, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we're looking for some of these upfront costs to, to really save the billions of dollars on the back end, but you know, it's kind of what have you done for me lately scenario where yeah. the policy, there's so much inertia <laughs> behind that, giving that providing that upfront cost that it's like hard to get over that hump. 
Yeah, I agree. I like that. What have you done for me lately? Policy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. That's I what mean, it we, is. we all know that's how the political cycle works, and and of course, economics is um, inexorably intertwined with that. So, yeah. I'm going to change veins just a little bit because uh, on a previous podcast, we it's one of my rant podcasts, which everybody asks for every once in a while. And in it, I'd kind of talked about this name paleo and um, just there, there is some negative association that's creeping up, but you know, that always happens with any kind of deviant and by deviant, I just mean different than the uh, (laughs) medical establishment. You know, that always happens with any kind of deviant protocol that comes up. Um, But you know, I, I think there is a legitimacy to people shying away from the term only because it can mean so many different things. And I, I personally think a lot of people have abused it only to become popular or only to get traffic or only to sell products. And uh, I'm seeing in you mean like least, the paleo candy books. Yeah. You know, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and you've obviously made a choice at the moment to, to stay with the paleo name. It was that, was that just because I'm I'm just wondering if you you have some logic for that or if you feel the same way about the this un oh, yeah, paleo brand? I've been brand. thinking about it for years. I mean, um, long before I even wrote, you know, wrote the hardcover book about, uh, version of my book came out. There was a long discussion about whether to use the term paleo in the title. Um, you know, there is a discussion even before that in terms of whether to use it in and around my blog and articles and, you know, or to come up with, I, I for a long time tried to come up with a, another term that would better encompass what I'm actually talking about because, uh, I, <laughs> you know, most people who are like strict paleo diet adherents uh, would call, would, would not, you know, I, I'm kind of persona non grata for them because I've written articles about how I think legumes, um, you know, that the paleo uh, hysteria or fear around legumes is unwarranted. And if you look at the research and what it suggests about legumes, number one, there's actually quite a bit of evidence that paleolithic people consume legumes. And number two, a lot of the justification and reasoning that's used to avoid legumes in the paleo world is not really scientifically sound. Um, I also think that uh, full fat and fermented dairy products, when they are well tolerated by the individual, uh, are healthy uh, and, and beneficial according to the research. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that full fat dairy is associated with reduced risk of cardiovascular and metabolic disease and obesity. Um, and there are a lot of compounds in the fat of of dairy products that that appear to be beneficial. So. So the diet that I'm advocating is not a classic paleo diet as it was originally defined. Uh, And yet the reason I use the term is that I find that it continues to be a convenient one word label for pointing towards a a certain approach to nutrition and lifestyle that, um, that I'm an advocate of. And that, you know, if I were to use the more drawn out description, it would probably be, uh, you know, ancestrally informed, nutrient dense, uh, low toxicity, whole food, real food diet. Uh, Cause that's really what I'm talking about, but that is obviously a mouthful. 
Um, most people in the general population, if I said that, would have no idea what I was talking about. They might think I was talking about a vegan diet. They might think I was talking about a raw food, you know, macrobiotic diet. Um, so I agree with you 100%. Paleo is a term that now uh, has a lot of baggage. It closes doors as often as it opens them, uh, maybe more often, depending on what audience of people you're talking to. Um, and it's sometimes a liability. And yet, so far, I have been unable to come up with another term that more effectively and quickly communicates what I'm talking about. So if you if you have any ideas, I'm uh, I'm always open to hearing them. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll, I'll brainstorm it on it at some point because I'm I have so much fun with branding. Uh, that's one of the things I never would have imagined caring about in the first place that now I just think is so much fun to give, you know, it, it's that, and that's why paleo works. It gives a very simple label to people, you know, a way for them to label themselves to be instantly part of a community that they feel like is um, aligned with whatever their ideology is when it comes to health and being healthy and, uh, unfortunately, it started to encompass this uh, anti-establishment, anti-medication thing. But, you know, it gives them a, an ability to to instantly recognize other people of the same mindset so that, you know, branding is is really important. And I could understand, especially in your situation, why you continue to use it. But I also think that your name is starting to carry its own kind of brand with it, uh, which is probably – why you haven't had, uh, or, you know, I don't know if you've, you've seen much backlash or not, whatever, but, you know, Chris Kresser is, is, is almost starting to become its own brand as far as, you know, procedure and uh, applicability and knowledge base. So, you know, yeah, got my, that going you know, my you. website is chriscresser.com. It's, there's no paleo in the URL. And, and I think, um, most people do recognize that, um, paleo approach, informed approach. I mean, I wrote a series of articles a long time ago called, um, uh, you know, I've written articles called is, is, uh, the legumes article was called is our legumes paleo and does it really matter? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I wrote an article a while back called, uh, about the paleo template where I said, look, let's move away from this paleo diet concept and move towards a paleo template, which, is the idea that we're not talking about a rigid, dogmatic, you know, predefined cookie cutter diet. We're talking about a, a way to eat that's informed by an, you know, evolutionary biology and ancestral perspective, but also is updated by the, what, what we've learned from modern research. And so I think at least within my community, most people who follow my work understand that I'm not you know, a paleo guy per se. I'm a clinician primarily um, that is interested in optimizing health that happens to be informed by some of the paleo principles, but, but, but that's it. And, and there are some people, you know, like when I was doing my book tour and all the interviews who try to give me a hard time about paleo, but um, it's, it's not, you know, that was more a, a, you know how the media is, they like to generate controversy, yeah. but it was very, it, it, that never really worked for them because I would, you know, say, you know what, I agree with a lot of the criticisms of paleo. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and that's where that ended. You know, it wasn't very interesting after that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think in 10 years, the paleo concept will be less, you know, uh, we used the analogy before of a raft with medication where like, you know, it's a useful thing to get from one place to, to the other. Mm-hmm. And, but maybe, maybe you don't carry it with you after you've gotten to that place. And I think paleo might be that too. It might be like a, a raft uh, that gets us from one place to the next in terms of advancing people's understanding about these concepts. But once we've arrived at that place, it may not, you know, it's, it's utility as a, as a term and as a organizing principle may, may be less than it is now. And that's, you know, there's one more thing I want to say about that, which is that I am a big believer in the power of story and narrative in terms of helping people to make change. And as human beings, that's pretty much how we learn. Um, I mean, if you think about if you've been to a, pre- you know, watched a presentation or a talk or read a book or whatever, the things that you tend to remember from those experiences are stories. Mm-hmm. And paleo, it, in a way, is just a big narrative. You know, it, it's a, it's a, it provides a context for understanding what kind of choices that, that somebody might make. So for everything from reducing their exposure to artificial light at night, because, you know, from an ancestral perspective, we didn't have any exposure to artificial light at night. And, and now modern research is showing us that that may have some uh, really potent adverse effects uh, to, you know, the way we move. Like um, we now know that it's not just important to get exercise throughout the week. It's actually important to sit less and move your body more frequently that cause mm-hmm. that, and that mimics more of an ancestral pers- uh, perspective on movement. So I think it provides, like I said, like a, a, a narrative and an organizing principle and, and a way of just kind of understanding things that is powerful and people really seem to get it and gravitate towards it in a way that they wouldn't, if it was just like a, a whole bunch of recommendations that didn't have that, context. Yeah, it's definitely opened up a lot of doors. That's the one thing that I always try to talk about paleo in a positive way is it it really has brought to attention a lot of things that I just, I don't know how else they would have come up in the conversation. And a a big one is gut health. It it is very important. Uh, How you go about tackling that, you know, is, is one way or another, but yeah, I just I don't that wasn't even on the horizon really before the paleo movement started to bring a lot of attention to it. And I think that's mm-hmm. been nothing but positive. Yeah, I would agree. It was part it, of functional medicine before paleo hit the scene though too, because that was always one of the core principles of, of functional medicine was gut health way back when. I mean, this was maybe fifteen years ago. I think maybe before paleo really hit it big. So certainly yeah. uh, there there are some root causes there. It's been around. I think, uh, uh, um, and, and people have known about it, no doubt. I think paleo or the concept of paleo has helped disseminate that concept mm-hmm. yeah. further and wider than maybe it would have been otherwise. It's so you wrote an article, seven things you should know about ketogenic diets. I think it was not too long ago. Oh, very low carb diets yeah, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So I just wanted to talk about your use of carbohydrates and how you structure the mm-hmm. diet. Um, yeah. 
Sure. Uh, In a totally individualized way is the short (laughs) version. And Um, that's a totally fine answer because that's what I always tell people too, and they always get pissed off by that answer, but it it really is the true answer. So go ahead. Well, well, here's the thing. I I don't understand why that's controversial. I'm still, you know, to, to, to be perfectly honest, it just blows my mind that that's even controversial because it's so clear to me that you know, from working with patients on a daily basis for a number of years, and also just from reading the literature and from my understanding of human physiology and evolutionary biology and genetics and epigenetics and and our, our, our understanding of the exposome, which I can come back to in a second, that, that there is no one-size-fits-all approach, that the diet needs to be tailored towards our own individual genes, gene expression, uh, lifestyle, circumstances, health status, and goals, and that there, you know, uh, therefore is no optimal amount of carbohydrates for every single person to eat. And furthermore, if we look at the history of human, you know, uh, we, we look at things from an anthropological perspective, we see examples of cultures all around the world eating dramatically different amounts of real food carbohydrates, not, you know, cheese doodles and Twinkies and super big gulps, but real food carbohydrates and, and, and maintaining, uh, optimum health. So, you know, in that article and in subsequent and previous articles, I've tried to communicate that there are times where we find ketogenic and very low carbohydrate diets to be extremely effective therapeutic tools. And some of those situations would be um, rapid weight loss um, and metabolic problems like type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome, uh, neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and dementia uh, and neuropathy and epilepsy. Um, and, uh, you know, those are probably the two, there's a lot of conditions within those two umbrellas, right? Those are just the big sort of uh, over overarching, um, umbrellas. And so, so we use them extensively in those. Oh, another one would be, uh, recalcitrant SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, Mm -hmm. where, um, patients, fail to respond to the conventional treatment and even the conventional diet, which we use as a a low FODMAP diet, um, completely removing all, uh, you know, most or all carbohydrates can, can really be helpful in that situation. Uh, autism, uh, spectrum disorders, sometimes uh, ketogenic diet can be helpful. So, so yeah, there's this entire range of conditions, which I find that to be extremely helpful for, and at the same time, there are situations where uh, we don't recommend a very low-carb ketogenic diet, and, and that would be uh, oftentimes in cases where uh, let's take a woman who is training extremely hard and has a hormone imbalance and is struggling with fertility. That would generally not be a situation where I would recommend a low-carb, a very low-carb ketogenic right. diet. So. To me, it's, it's, again, the question of the right tool for the right situation. And I personally think the whole debate around carbohydrates has gotten really blown out of proportion because if everyone just agreed on that, then there wouldn't really be much to debate about. Yeah, I, and I'm pretty sure you're familiar with my approach, and it's the approach Rocky's adopted in his clinic, and that's 
my thought about carbohydrates is they, they really are so potent in so many different ways um, from an endocrinological point of view, from a molecular biological point of view, you know, the processes they can drive either through the glucose itself or through the action of insulin. I've always just seen carbohydrates as a tool and that tool could either be as almost therapeutic or it could be performance-based. And so if you understand how the carbs work and what they do, then it's really not that hard to tune not only that I'm a big advocate of food timing, regardless of the type of food, especially carbohydrates. Yeah. If, if you understand those rules, it's really not that hard to tune the amount and timing of carbohydrates for somebody's goals. And that's, that's where I find things to be so frustrating is that the, the two camps are so polarized. You have the one camp that's like carbohydrates are necessary to live. If you don't get them on a regular basis, your brain's going to shut down and you're going to die to you should never eat carbohydrates again because they're nothing but poison. They're going to give you cancer. They're going to shut down your liver. And, you know, those two camps are just so polarized that it, and people like to attract to that. They like to latch on to the controversy that comes from that polarization when the real answer is really just learning how to use the carbohydrates. I'm not an advocate of a long-term ketogenic diet. Uh, some people make that mistake because of how my some of my diets are structured, but I'm also definitely not an advocate of you should eat carbohydrates at every meal of the day because they're really they're that important. Uh, so mm -hmm. yeah. you know that's uh, so part of your you know in that ketogenic article part of it I you know I I would have totally agreed with which surprised a lot of people. People were sending it to me, so you need to refute this. I'm like, well. You know, in the long-term instance, I, I think he's absolutely correct. You know, the long-term ketogenic diet is not an approach that actually I think very many people should adhere to, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I, I, you know, I think it's important to keep carbs in context. And like you said, and that's the answer that pisses everybody off, is it depends on the person. And yeah. it, it's amazing how much that pisses people off when you give them that answer. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's, I not what it's I want. really, yeah, it's, it's, I've, <laughs> tried, I've thought a lot about it and really tried to understand. I mean, I think from, from a patient or consumer perspective, one of the reasons that's frustrating is because it's easy to get really confused. And I think a lot of people are just simply overwhelmed, you know, with mm -hmm. the amount of information out there and, and they're overwhelmed in their own lives. You know, people are busy. They're just, often, you know, trying to get by and keep their head above water and for them to have to figure it out on their own and do that kind of experimentation and, and really listen to their body and like track what's happening and go through this whole process that I recommend is actually asking a lot of people, yeah. I think yeah. is what I've begun to realize. And, and so it's much easier and simpler to just be told what to do and to be able to rest in that certainty of like, this is the, this is the way to go. And I don't have to listen, you know, listen to my body or pay attention in any way. I just follow this instruction and that's certainly a lot easier. There's no question about that. So I think that's part of the resistance in terms of consumers and, and, or patients or whatever you want to call them. Um, I don't really like either of those words, but, <laughs> right. um, you know, people, I guess, is another Yeah, the end term. user. Uh, the end user. Um, <laughs> and then in terms of, like, uh, people who are educators, uh, you know, uh, 
there's lots of things we could speculate about there. But uh, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, so there, there's people who just really believe that carbohydrates are evil in every context and should be avoided. Um, and, you know, I don't know what to say about that. I've, I've tried to argue with that, with using science and, and you know, peer-reviewed research and clinic, clinical and anecdotal experience. And if those arguments haven't convinced somebody, then they're not going to, and so be it. You know, it's, it's not, I'm not, uh, I don't believe that we all have to agree 100%. You know, I, I have uh, friends and colleagues with whom I disagree on certain subjects. And I think that's part of being a mature adult and um, there's room for that. And, and I think it makes a more interesting world and actually helps to advance uh, scientific understanding. Um, so I think, you know, we, <laughs> and we, you know, we use carbohydrate backloading and timing in our practice as well. Like people with adrenal fatigue, for example, we tend to recommend high protein and fat in the morning and, and, and then gradually shifting as they go through the day to higher, you know, more carbohydrates. Um, I mean, not, not more carbohydrates and, and like low fat and low protein, but just adding, you know, carbohydrates as they go through the day. Uh, we find that to be helpful for people with sleep difficulties as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, people with weight loss or, or weight management issues. Um, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that a, a, a high protein intake, particularly in the morning can increase satiety and reduce, uh, calorie intake throughout the day. So, um, it's all part of the, this whole finessing and customization and, and, uh, individualization process that, that I think is really the, you know, the, the best approach. Yeah. And like you said, that's, we have so much information now that I, I honestly, from a scientific perspective, I don't think you could refute that. You know, when you look at our understanding of epigenetics now, especially, um, I find that to be one of the most convincing fields of research that, you know, you almost do need an individualized approach uh, when you are trying to help people, even if your main target is just diet and exercise. Uh, they've, they've got some very, I just found them so intriguing, you know, when they were, they were looking at non-responders to exercise and, you know, they're, mm -hmm. I know people all the time, you know, they, you hear about hard gainers like, oh, you know, I resistance trained so much. And, you know, what they actually found when they, when they had a group of people of hard gainers, quote unquote, and people who responded really well to resistance training, they had completely different hormonal reactions from the same type of training. And so all they did yeah. was, yeah, they basically just tweaked the one group's training and all of a sudden they started to make gains again. But it was, it was so out far, it was so, you know, far afield of kind of what anybody ever thinks about, about, you know, individualization. It's like, like, here's your resistance training routine. This is going to work for everybody. And, and that's just not the case, uh, you know, even at that level, which to me seems much more simple than diet. Even in that instance, you have to know something about yourself in an internal way to do the right thing. And I don't know why that's so hard for people to, to start to grasp because, you know, yeah. you, people see it in their day-to-day -day life. It's like my friend did this diet and they had amazing results. I'm going to do it. And then ultimately they become disappointed. And instead of thinking, well, maybe it wasn't the right diet for me, they're like, well, my friend didn't tell me something. 
because you always get. Or to I, I need to do it. I need to do it more. You know, right, like right, harder, longer, faster. You know, right. whatever. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, it's epigenetics is totally revolutionizing our understanding of medicine, and and it, as you suggested, provides the scientific evidence-based underpinning for personalized medicine. I mean, uh, there's just crazy stuff that we're seeing in, in the research, like, um, you know, uh, the, the, the Norbotten cohort in, in northern Sweden uh, back in, you know, this is an area, totally isolated area of northern Sweden where they were completely dependent on their own harvest. And, uh, you know, if the harvest failed, they starved. And if it was a bumper crop, they would gorge for, for, for months. And so this is like a really unique cohort of people to study. And uh, studies have shown that if, if uh, uh, a boy, like a young boy who enjoyed the rare overabundant winters where the kids went from normal eating to gluttony in a single season, their sons and grandsons had way, you know, significantly shorter lifespans, like 30 years shorter uh, after socioeconomic variations were were considered. And they also were at much higher risk for obesity and, and, and diabetes and other uh, conditions. And these are, this is, this is the grandchildren of those right. people. So, I mean, in a way it's, it's kind of, it's good news, bad news, right? The bad right. news is that stuff that happened to your grandmother and grandfather actually affects your disease risk and even your potential lifespan. But the good news is that these factors that are controlling gene expression that are turning genes on and off are, you know, present throughout our lives. And the choices mm -hmm. that we make in our lifetimes can not only affect the way that the, our genes express and don't express, but they can even affect our kids and grandkids. So it makes it even more important for us to be making healthy choices now. And it makes it more obvious that what works for one person isn't going to work for another because those epigenomic influences are, you know, might be dramatically different. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's a key is that the choice that we make now affecting your lineage. I, I know they've got some mouse studies that are really interesting. You know, some show the, uh, basically the acquiring of traits through the mother side, you know, depending and a lot of those are actually neurologically focused and in, in emotional health. Uh, and it shows that those can be passed down. But What's interesting is some of the mice studies that show depending on a mouse's diet in a certain time and the way that it can uh, turn off the expressive expression of a gene, they can actually pass that on as hardwired into their DNA to the next generation. And mm -hmm. you yep. can get – depending on when their diet is you know, what one type or another, you can get different hardwiring turned on and off. So men in particular really need to be focused on what their diet is, what time of life they're in. You know, th those need to be important factors, uh, especially if you're looking to start a family. I, and, you know, all of that stuff is just so far out there for most people to even comprehend that it's, it's, it, it's really hard to weave those messages in when, like you said, they're already overwhelmed by so much stuff anyway. It's like, oh, well – you know, if you're this brand of paleo, you need to watch this, this, and this. And, oh, well, if you're going to go vegan, you need to watch this, this, and this. And, oh, well, if you're going to yeah. go ketogenic, now you've got to watch this, this, and this. And, 
oh, well, there's, you know, the four-hour body diet. Now you've got to watch this, this, and this. I mean, he, I, I, for most people, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they can stay on yeah. any single path very long. Yeah, exactly. So that's, we're actually at the end of our hour. If there's anything you'd like well, to wrap up with, and obviously everybody can find you at chriscresser.com. And we'll put that in the show notes so people can get there. And anything else you want to talk about before we sign off? I don't think so. I've enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate the invitation. And uh, keep keep up the great work, both of you. Yeah, thanks for coming too. on. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for getting us into your schedule. We appreciate it. And sorry we had a little trouble with our schedule as well. But yeah, really glad this happened. Me too. Take care, guys. Yep, you too. Have a good one. And Bye-bye. that's another episode of Body IOFF. been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.